You can hardly go to a town in America where there's not at least some kind of a Christian broadcast on radio. Uh, Even these contemporary stations will have Bible preaching in which you can hear the gospel. used to be that every major town in the country had a Christian bookstore. That's become less and less now as people are buying things online. But Christian bookstores, Christian resources, readily available. Think about a commentary series. and I've got apps on my phone. I've got a little, uh, just a mini Logos Bible app on here that I can access commentaries and some word studies and Think about on your computer at home, you may have different Bible study access, free, completely free. I've got multiple Bibles that I use for different study Bibles, um, Hebrew, Greek, keyword study Bible. You know, I got a Thompson Chain reference, I got a Ryrie study Bible, I got a life application Bible, all kinds of notes. And I mean, I have, I just picked up a couple Bibles from my dad after he died that he'd write in them, wear them out, get another one, start writing in that. And we really have access everywhere to the Bible. Hotel last night, I opened up to put some of my socks in the drawer, and there's a Bible, just like always in a hotel. The Gideons have gone in and put Bibles there. See, think about this. We really have greater access to the Bible than any people ever have had. And yet, godliness is at an all-time low. True godliness, true holy character, is a rarity. It's an exception. You think about, why is that? It's not any lack of access, that's for sure. In fact, you go to a typical church like yours, and I say typical, I mean, how many churches like Berean are there? You know, in our country, within the realm of independent Baptist churches, there are are anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 congregations like you, and uh, and of course, they vary in philosophy, and that's, that's the autonomy of the local church. That's soul liberty and freedom of conscience. But you know, realms like ours, um, the average church, probably about 85 people, typically. You know, you have, a, you have a, a larger congregation, numerically. Most churches I'm in, smaller. I was in a church a couple weeks ago, 20 people was the average attendance. And that is not, that's not unusual in this country. But even then, okay, so they're getting sound Bible teaching But how often do you find a person that just exudes love for God, passion for souls, burden for missions? I think we have to admit those are the exceptions, not the rule. Why is that? I really believe the evidence for it, the basis for it, is in the parable that Jesus gave called the parable of the sower. And I want to preach a message I call Grounds for Growth and Godliness. Grounds, like coffee grounds or working the ground. Okay, Grounds for Growth and Godliness. If we're going to see godliness, if we're going to see genuine spirituality in our lives, it's got to come out of a heart that's properly prepared, properly tended by God. So go to Jesus' familiar parable. It's Matthew 13. Very interesting. Uh, the parables are given in the Synoptic Gospels. And just since we're in Sunday school, I can get a little more academic in here. A lot of you know there are the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. Um, sin from, S-Y-N, from synonym or synchronized. If we all synchronize our watches, we get them on the same time. Okay, if you use a synonym, that's words that mean the same thing. Okay, sin means same. Optic, like I, I wear contacts, okay, I have optical lenses, so that adjusts your vision. So optic has to do with seeing, sin has to do with same, to see the same. Why are they called the synoptic gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very much your traditional biography, okay? They, they just report the, the doings of and the teachings of Jesus, whereas John is, uh, John's more of an apologetic. He's giving you specifically a defense of the deity of Jesus Christ, now, you can figure out from the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus is God. But they're your pretty traditional biography, and then John is really delving into the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, so the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all give the parable of the sower. And you have Matthew chapter 13, you have Mark chapter 4, and Luke chapter 8, where you'll find the parable. Now, I'm going to do some comparing between the Matthew and the Luke account. Just to make it simpler, we won't do all three, but... I mean, you're welcome to dig into them. You ought to. Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8. So you want to put a marker, and we'll go to Luke 8 in a minute. Some of you want to get ahead of me here. And I'll make it really easy to take notes. There'll be four points because there are uh, four types of ground. And if you want to follow along, I'm going to start with this in uh, Matthew chapter 
13, verse 1, and let me read from 1 to 8. We'll get the reading in, and then we'll get Jesus' interpretation. Verse 1 says, Then the same day went Jesus out of, the, uh, out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him. So he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. The fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. Forthwith, right away, they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. Some fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus is giving here a parable, and I think most of you know a parable was an earthly story that would teach some heavenly truth. And Jesus constantly used parables in teaching. In fact, it was the Jewish way. You know, the Jews passed down their history through oral tradition. Originally, Scripture was transmitted orally before it was recorded. And so Jesus was the master of telling stories. And I think that in preaching, you know, there's there's a fitting place for illustrations, Charles Spurgeon said illustrations are the window to the sermon. They let the light in. Now, a message that's just all stories is, has no authority because it's not God's word. My purpose in preaching is to give you the word of God. But the stories supplement. They, they bring in light. Jesus would use these parables, and it, it seems from Scripture that as he would go from town to town, remember he went into all the cities and villages, he would repeat these in different towns. It's just like As your pastor and I in evangelism would travel, or I still travel, uh, I'll use messages that I've used at other churches. You know why? It's like the Old Testament prophet. The prophet would come proclaiming the burden of the Lord. And he's focusing on really rock bottom issues, bottom line issues. A.W. Tozer said the difference between the pastor and evangelist is like the difference between the family doctor and the surgeon. The pastor is like the family doctor. And the surgeon is who you go to when you need some radical performance done, you know, and uh, nobody would go to the, to the surgeon if he just has a sniffle or a cold or, you know, common cold. But uh, when you need an amputation or you have to have some radical surgery, you bring in the surgeon. Well, they don't contradict. They work together. They complement each other. Okay, so that's the role. The evangelist is kind of like the surgeon. Now, don't worry. I'm, I'm supposed to do it with, you know, painkiller attached to it. So, uh, but... <laughs> My job is dealing with bottom line issues. Jesus would go into towns and he would use these parables as a platform for teaching Bible truth. Now this particular one is given at the Sea of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. I only got to go to Israel one time, it was in 2001. And I went on a trip with uh, Tom Farrell was the host, Evangelist Tom Farrell. And uh, Jimmy DeYoung lived in Israel and he he was our local guide. And it was a fascinating trip. And I remember we, we'd been in, in the southern part of Israel. Now we're going up to Galilee, the region where Jesus was raised. And Brother Farrell came to me one night. He said, uh, Brother Rich, how'd you like to preach tonight? You know, be instant in season, out season. I said, oh, okay, where are we going? He said, we're going to co- go to Capernaum, brother. He said, we're going to be in the town where Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew were all called in the ministry. And he said, we're going to be within steps of the synagogue where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And he said, you want to preach tonight? I said, sure. He said, they might not listen too well. You'll be having the Sea of Galilee as your backdrop. But he said, I thought you might enjoy preaching there. So I'll tell you, I did. And I'm standing at, at, with my back to the Sea of Galilee. They're all looking that way, and I'm preaching. And I remember looking out, and, you know, the landscape hasn't changed since Jesus' day. And there are hills that converge there, Capernaum. And it wouldn't surprise me if, as Jesus was preaching, he said, behold, a sower went forth to sow. He might have actually been pointing to somebody do it. And you remember the old sower, he would have a big bag of seed around his neck. I, I remember for years, uh, Bearing Precious Seed International, they had the, the sower with the big bag of seed. And, and, you know, he would scatter the seed. That's what's happening. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And so notice he mentions there are four types of ground. And uh, interesting in verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4, you have by the wayside, and I circled that phrase, by the wayside. In verse 5, you have stony places, I circled that, that's another type of ground, we'll get to these in a minute. Verse 7, you have among thorns, that's a third type of ground. And then in uh, verse number 8, you have good ground. So those are your four types, we're going to dive into that here in just a minute. 
But then he gives an explanation. Okay, so now this is where I want to spend our time. Verses 18 to 23. Would you jump down now? Because later on the disciples said, what does this mean? And in verse 18, now this is really the crux of the matter for us. All right, hear you therefore the parable of the sower. Now it is interesting to me that Jesus called it the parable of the sower. If you get out a Bible commentary, you'll see a lot of people like to call it the parable of the soils. Because they say, well, you know, the real focus is on the four different types of soil and, and people's response. Isn't it interesting that the Savior called it the parable of the sower? I got thinking about that. I wonder why he chose that title. Well, because although the types of ground represent different responses from the heart, the sower is sowing the word of God. And no matter what the response, the seed is good and the sower's job is good. Amen. Now, who's the sower? The sower is the soul winner who gives the gospel. The sower is the pastor who preaches to his flock the word of God. The sower is the evangelist who proclaims the truth. The sower is you teaching to your Sunday school class or conducting your Bible study. The sower is anyone given the word of God. And so be encouraged from this parable. No matter what the response of the people listening to you, the word of God is good and it will not return void. You may remember in Isaiah 55... Uh, verses 10 and 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I said it. God's word will always prosper. Now the question is, how much freedom are you giving, are you giving God to work in your own heart? So he says here, therefore, the parable of the sower. And then he picks up in verse 19. And I'm, I'm going to break it down this way. If you're a note taker, number one is wayside ground. This is in verses 18 and 19. And I'm going to give each of them a little uh, catchphrase, okay? I call wayside ground snatched seed. Think of like a purse snatcher, okay? Snatched seed. Let's take a look. Verse 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. And again, I circled the phrase there, the wayside. So in my mind, I know, okay, that's, he's elaborating on the wayside ground. So what do we learn here? Well, I, I wrote down, first of all, letter A. And if you get letter A for point number one, you'll have letter A for point two, three, and four as well. You could cut and paste if you're doing this electronically, okay? Because point, sub-point A is this. The seed is sown, the word is heard. You'll hear that every time. The seed sown... The words heard. So notice, he's sowing and he throws the seed. In fact, let's go to Luke now and we'll, we'll start comparing. Luke chapter 8 opens up with the parable of the sower in verse 4. And then he gets to the explanation down in verse 11. So let's go to Luke chapter 8 verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Okay, folks, so let me ask you. You can interact with me here, please. What does the seed represent? Word of God. You guys are brilliant. Okay, great job. It's not hard, is it? He says it perfectly. It's so clear. I don't have to interpret it. Jesus did. All right, what's the seed represent? The Word of God. Okay, the seed's the Word of God. And then go on to this, verse 12. Those by the wayside, okay, circle that. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the Word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So I wrote down the seed sown, the Word is heard. Seed equals the Word of God. But letter B... The seed is snatched, the word is wasted. The seed is snatched, the word is wasted. Have you ever sensed maybe teaching your Sunday school class or conducting a Bible study or witnessing to somebody who's lost, there's a battle going on? You're trying to convey some truth and it just seems like the person you're talking to, their mind's distracted, it seems to be drifting. Have you ever felt that? Let me tell you, I sense that battle every time I step into a pulpit. I was a college representative for uh, three and a half years. I, I graduated from Pensacola Christian, and I would go all over the country preaching. And then later around the world, I went to 61 missionary schools in 36 countries all around the world. And I'll tell you, every time I stood before a, a group of Christian school students, I sensed the battle going on. There is a war being waged in the heart of man, whether people are going to embrace the truth or not. It's going on with you right now, whether you sense it or not. That's one of the reasons it is so imperative for us to pray. You know, the Lord says, you have not because you what? Ask not. I was just asking, Pastor, um, 
Pastor Todd, you think maybe sometime this week we could do some prayer meetings together? I like to do a pre-service prayer meeting. He said, I think it's a great idea. I know a lot of you battle Atlanta traffic. I was dealing with it yesterday coming back from the men's retreat, and that's a weekend. But if any of you can make it here a half hour before the weeknight services, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I would love to get any of you, men, women, teenagers, any of you that can come, I'd love to have us gather and pray. You know why? I can tell people how to be saved, but only God can save people. I can tell Christians they need to walk with God, but only God can sanctify people. And that's where prayer is the work that goes into the heart of man, in the battle that's being raged for the souls of men. Prayer is how God gets to the heart. And that's how we labor together. I find people that come to the prayer meetings will often tell me, I got as much out of the prayer meetings as I did anything else during the week. You know what? We get to partner together. We get to share the burden of that together. The seed's sown, the word's heard, but then the seed is snatched, the word is wasted. I worked on a farm in New Jersey. I grew up in southern New Jersey, about uh, 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. So Paul Smith and I grew up in areas close to each other. He was on the Pennsylvania side, and I grew up on the other side of the river. And I, New Jersey, if you don't know, uh, southern New Jersey is actually a rural area. How many of you have been to Jersey? Anybody ever been? Okay, I know Mrs. Sweat had grown up in that area. So I grew up in South Jersey, and I worked on a farm. And our friends, the Griffins, had a farm called Roundtree Farm. They are lifelong friends. And uh, five generations of friendship between the Tozer and the Griffin families. In fact, my, uh, my grandmother married their grandfather after they were both widowed. And so uh, th- there was a family connection in every sense of the word. I used to work on the farm as a kid in the summer, and my, my friend Dave Griffin had rheumatoid arthritis so bad that he had knees replaced, hips replaced, his hands were are, are drawn shut since he was in his 30s, he's in his 70s now. He had uh, ladders welded to his John Deere tractors and painted John Deere green, and he would have to just work his way up with his prosthetic shoe or his uh, special shoe that was platform raised and he'd work his way up the ladder. It wasn't easy for Dave to get up and down. So he'd hire people like me, high school kids, to help him. I remember springtime. My job was to be out there in the fields and I'd rip open the bags of seed and I'd dump them in the hopper and then Dave would go up and down the fields and the, the machine would dispense the seed. So we do it, you know, we do it with some electronic help nowadays. But if we like to sow or sow in the seed... But as he would make the turn, he would come down along the road that was beside the fields. Now, that's the wayside, okay? That's where the wagons would run. And in our day, the tractors would run back then. You'd have mules or, you know, donkeys, cattle going up and down. So it's just a travel way beside the field. But sometimes as he'd make the turn, the seeds would drop out of the hopper. Same with the sower would sow, and sometimes the wind would carry it here and there. He's trying to get it in the rows that have been prepped, but seed's going to get scattered. And, and guess who showed up? Now, I was in high school in the 20th century, okay, a century ago. Uh, I was in high school. But in the 20th century, guess who showed up just like in the first century? The birds. It's free lunch. And the birds are eating the seed. Now, what's the, what do the birds represent? Well, okay, here, this, this is such an easy class today. So uh, the birds in verse 12 are typifying who? The devil, Satan. Yeah. Then cometh the devil and taketh away out of the word out of their hearts. So where the seed is supposed to be sown represents the heart. Satan's coming to snatch it away, lest they should believe and be what? Saved. So the very obvious implication here, I wrote down, Satan takes it away. Soil was not prepared. Soul is not saved. It's pretty obvious in that one, right? Satan takes it away. Soil was not prepared. Soul is not saved. That's why Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. He uses these terms of farming because the, the reason a farmer runs a plow through a field is to break up ground. And fallow ground was be, be ground that had lain dormant for a while where the plow would run back and forth year after year if the plow goes down, you know, a foot and a half, 18 inches, whatever. Uh, to get the ground below that torn up took an extra bit of effort to really dig deep and break up the ground. And that's the kind of prep work we need to see if we're going to experience revival. We, we've got to ask God, Lord, would you just do a work to plow? And does anybody like being plowed? No, but we need to be plowed, don't we? 
We need God to do a work. And by the way, he's a gracious God. The great physician has the best bedside manners you'll ever experience. But we need God to do a work. So, lest the soul should believe and be saved. I, I can't tell you how many times I've preached in a Christian school, and I've noticed it's just like water off the back of a duck with some kids. Because you see, the more exposure you have to truth and the more indifferent you become, the harder your heart grows. I preached in a college chapel at Pensacola Christian last week and, and was telling the kids, the most dangerous place on earth, Jesus' parable of the sower, I'm sorry, Jesus' parable of the, the wise man and the foolish man, the most dangerous place on earth is to be in a place like this where you're hearing the word of God all the time, but you're indifferent to it. You're just not moved by it. That's the most dangerous place. You're hearing the word, but you're not heeding the word. If that's true of anybody, and by the way, it's true in churches too. If that's true, this becomes the most dangerous place. By the way, conversely, the safest place to be in all the world is in a place like this where you're hearing the word and heeding it. When you're doing it, that's when you're going to be fortified against the storm. But it all comes down to your response to the word. So, first we have the wayside ground. It's snatched seed. Seed sown, words heard. Seed snatched, words wasted. Number two, we have the stony ground. Okay, so don't lose the uh, Luke account. We'll come back there. But let's flip back over to Matthew. All right, Matthew chapter 13, and we'll start in Matthew and come back to Luke. Matthew 13, now we have the stony ground, and I call this scorched seed. And it's in verses 20 and 21 that Jesus gives the explanation. So go back to verse 20. He that receives seed into stony places, circle that, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon, um, right away, immediately, anon, with joy, receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but doeth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by, he's offended. Okay, stony ground, call this scorched seed. I worked on the farm, and in the winter, the snows would come, and then the early rains in the spring would come, and the topsoil would get washed away. And so we had to go out in the field, and we have wagons, and we would pick up all the rocks before we plowed, because rocks and plows are not a good combination. So we take the big rocks and throw them in the, in the uh, wagon and haul them off. And we'd also assess, there were sometimes areas where when the dirt had been washed away, you have some areas of shale or rock. And you know, you're, you're not going to plant there, because you, you know how it works with seed. Uh, when you plant a seed, the seed actually goes into the ground and the kernel rots and out of the seed comes a taproot. You remember when Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it, if it die, it'll bring forth much fruit. Okay, so the seed goes in the ground, rots, the taproot comes out. If the taproot can't go down and take root, you get nothing, right? So what happens if you plant a seed in a thin veneer of soil, but underneath is nothing but rock. Goes nowhere. So, notice this. The seed is sown, the word is heard. Okay, you'll see that, letter A. So you'll see that every time. Um, again, in verse 20, he says, He that receives seed into the stony place is the same as he that heareth the word, and right away, anon, with joy receiveth it. Interesting. This is the person that's emotionally in tune, there are all kinds of churches people go to on any given Sunday and their response to the Word of God is a, an emotionally positive response. But is there any depth to it? A lot of churches today are geared toward making people feel good. By the way, I, I don't think we ought to make people feel bad. I mean, that's not our intention. But I like the way old Oliver B. Green said it years ago, if rough, rugged religion rubs men the wrong way, they ought to turn around so it'll rub them the right way. There are times Scripture's going to rub you the wrong way. But you know what you need to do? Repent. Turn around. Then it'll rub you the right way. But a lot of places, you know, it's just about making people feel good. It's the positive worship experience. Positive worship experience is not how you feel when you leave church. It's how big has God been made in the eyes of the people. So here we have the seed sown, but the seed is scorched. Notice I wrote the seed is sown, immediately received, gladly received, but then letter B, the seed is scorched, the word is withered. The seed is scorched, the word's withered. So if you plant seed in an area where there's a veneer of soil, but then the taproot goes down and hits stone, it's just going to wither. The sun comes up and scorches it, and it's got no depth. 
Have you ever known people that come to church and they, they, they're emotionally responsive? They, they seem positive in their experience. They might even walk down an aisle and say, I want to be saved. And then it's not too long. Something tough comes along and they all of a sudden get offended and they drop out of church and you never see them again. Huh, let's, let's go to Luke chapter 8. Let's see, he gives further explanation here. Luke chapter 8. And uh, the explanation here is in verse number 13. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation, fall away. Okay, in time of temptation, fall away. Now what does he mean, for a while believe? Well, first of all, he's not talking about losing your salvation. How do I know that? Well, you're a Baptist, that's what Baptists believe. Look, I grew up Methodist, okay? And, and uh, Methodists are Armenian in their theology. Now, I did, I, our church didn't even preach the gospel. So I can't go back to Methodism and say, well, you know, at one time I was in a group that believed you could lose your salvation. They didn't even preach salvation, the group I was in, okay? I, I'm not a Baptist because I grew up Baptist. I'm a Baptist because I studied the Bible and said, I believe that theology is right, okay? Let me be clear. Being a Baptist is not what gets me to heaven. You must be born again. Okay, I'd love you to be a Baptist. I believe Baptist theology is Bible theology. But I will tell you this, I don't believe in eternal security because I'm a Baptist. Now in John 5, in John 5 verse 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So the moment you believe on Christ, you have. That's present tense. He hath right now. Everlasting life. Now think about this. If you, the moment you trusted him, have everlasting life, then if you somehow lost it, would it really be everlasting life? No, it wouldn't be. In fact, it says he is passed from death into life. And I was telling the men this weekend, that's like a one-time action with ongoing results. So I'm, I get, wedding ring here tells you I'm married. May 22nd, 1993, Angela Westberg and I pledged our vows to each other, and Angela Westberg became Angela Tozer. So I, I married A.W. Tozer, Angela Westberg Tozer. And uh, so, and I, we, I am distantly related to the other A.W. I never knew him, but that somewhere all Tozers are related. But I, I married Angela, and so now the rest of my life has been impacted by the decision I made at one point, a vow till death do us part, and now 30 years into it, I'm still affected by that, and that's why this week I feel incomplete, because my, my, my other self is back in Florida. Uh, we usually travel together, and our trailer's having issues, and I, I couldn't bring the family right now. So, one-time decision, ongoing ramifications. When you got saved, it says you have passed from death to life, so it's, you're already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. So that's why I believe in eternal security, and a lot of times people use Hebrews chapter 6, say, you know, they were enlightened, but they fall away. And Well, if you believe that, it says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So if you did believe in losing your salvation, and based on Hebrews 6, you'd also have to say you could never be saved ever again. And most who are believe that you can lose your salvation never say that. Now, I believe that you're saved forever. Now, some have the idea, well, if you believe once saved, always saved, well, then you just live any way you want. Really? You think that? You don't understand God then. Because when he gets saved, he becomes your heavenly father. And I will tell you this, one thing I know about your father, he's holy. And I'll tell you this about my earthly father. I knew I couldn't sin and get away with it with my earthly dad. You think your heavenly father's going to let you sin and get away with it? Whom the Lord loveth, he what? Chasten it. Now, if you're saved, you don't sin and get away with it. He chastens, he corrects. Okay, so it's, if it's not talking about losing your salvation, what is it talking about? Well, it's the person who's been enlightened, they understand the truth, but they never were saved, they reject the truth. Why do I say that? Well, I believe here it's pretty clear, because the term fall away here in verse number 13, time of temptation, they fall away, Luke 8, that's the term ephistomy, the basis of our English word apostasy. I told you I grew up in a Methodist church. The church I grew up in was apostate. I'm not saying, I don't throw these terms around like people throw the term racist around today and misogynist. You know, words mean nothing nowadays. Well, apostate was a person who knew the truth but willfully rejected the truth. Historically, Methodists had believed in salvation by grace through faith. John and Charles Wesley came to the proposition that you must be born again. These clergymen knew the history of the Methodist church, but they had rejected it in favor of modernism. 
And so though they knew of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they did not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They did not believe that he rose again bodily from the grave. They were apostate. I'm not saying that to be unkind. That's the term epistemy. If you go back to Matthew, the passage that uh, we were looking at earlier, by the way, I, I should clarify, because sometimes people think, yeah, Baptists, they just trash everybody else. Listen, there are still Methodists who preach the Bible. There are still people who preach salvation by grace. So when you hear me critique somebody, this is not Baptist versus Methodist. This is not we're on the crusade against everybody else. My interest is where does a person side with truth? There are lots of Baptist churches I wouldn't recommend you go to because they are not rooted in the Word of God. So the loyalty has got to be to Scripture. So I, I need to tell you that so you just don't think, ah, oh, Baptists, they just bash everybody. No, no, it's just where do you stand with the truth? Okay, so you go back to the Matthew account, and he's talking about those on the rock. And what does he say here? Uh, Matthew 13, verse 21. Yet hath he not rooted himself, doth for a while, for when tribulation, that's really tough times, or persecution, opposition arises, because of the word by and by, he's offended. Okay, the word offended is the word scandalizomai, the basis of our word scandalize. So um, Paul Smith was telling me yesterday, you know, I was in uh, ministry in 1987, and he says, here I am, we're trying to do some fundraising efforts. And he said, you know what happened in 1987? It was the Jim Baker scandal. Remember that? Jim Baker and Tammy Faye. And then not long after that, it was the Jimmy Swaggart scandal. And you know what happened? People thought, if that's Christianity, I am not supporting that. And so they didn't. They stopped giving to ministries. Okay, scandalized. When, when somebody falls into sin... It, it creates a, ra- a reaction. I met a girl one time in Florida, and her pastor, youth pastor had uh, been teaching the kids to memorize the Word of God and have devotions and witness to people. And she said, but all of a sudden, our youth group has turned totally hard against God. I said, okay, how do you have a youth group that was on fire and turned against God? She said, Brother Rich, our, our youth pastor fell into sin. I said, you mean committed adultery? Or She said, oh, like everything, she said, um, immoral sin, divorced his wife, uh, left the ministry and turned his back on God, denounced God. She said some teenagers from our youth group were riding by uh, one of the taverns in town, one of the bars in town, and saw him come stumbling drunk out of the bar. She said, Brother Rich, it has just sent our youth group into a tailspin. Well, I can imagine. You know, and what I shared with her was um, something my dad had told me was a young man, Psalm 118.8, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Amen. Men may fail you, but the Lord will never fail you. Uh, I'll tell you, if I'd been talking to the youth pastor, I'd been sharing different scripture, that's for sure. Listen, this, this girl and her youth group had been through just some deep hurts because somebody they trusted had let them down. Jesus says, look, people, they'll, they'll hear the word, and if they don't have any depth to their decision... What will happen is they make an emotional response, but when persecution, that's opposition, or tribulation, those are tough times, come along, it'll expose that there was nothing genuine to it. It was just an emotional response. I wrote down 1 John 2.19. Good reference. 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Titus chapter 1, verse 16 says... They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient unto every good work, reprobate. Think about it. Jesus had a congregation initially of 12, and one of those was lost and ended up in hell. The greatest teacher ever has one-twelfth of his students in hell today. The problem wasn't with the teacher. The problem was Judas's response to the Word of God. You can sit in church every week and hear the Word of God. But that doesn't guarantee that you know the Lord is Savior. Have you put your faith in what you're hearing? Have you trusted the one who's speaking? Have you trusted the one who died on that cross, shed his blood, and rose again? I wrote down Ezekiel chapter 33. You might want to write this reference down. Ezekiel 33, verses 30 to 33. Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses and they speak one to another, every one to his brother saying, come I pray you and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people come and they sit before thee as my people and they hear thy words. But they'll not do them. 
For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that can play well and on an instrument, hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, they shall know that a prophet hath been among them. Now what's that mean? Ezekiel was known for really elaborate object lessons. He apparently was quite the dynamic speaker. And people would say, you've got to come hear this prophet. It's kind of like youth groups today. You know, we'll all load up in a church van and go hear Dr. So-and-so or Brother So-and-so. And man, I'll tell you, I remember when I was a kid in college, I told my parents I would pay the money to come to Christian college just to hear the chapel messages. Your pastor's father was one of my favorites when I was in college. And I heard men like Dr. Ron Comfort, who's how I ended up in evangelism, and Tom Farrell. And, and I remember when Brother Savinsky got up and spoke, and I, I just thought, oh, to be able to command the scripture like that, to be able to quote the word of God, that's where the power is. You know, a lot of times people love the oratory of scripture, but, but the danger is you can just hear it and let it be like water off the back of a duck if you're not careful. And that's what was happening in Ezekiel's day. So there's the stony ground. But then you have number three, the thorny ground. The thorny ground. You're in the Matthew account. Look at uh, verse 22, Matthew 13, 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. All right, I wrote down, the seed is sown, the word is heard. I, ca I call this, by the way, smothered seed. Y'all know how to spell mother, right? Put an S in front of it. <laughs> Some mothers are smothers. Uh, S-M-O-T-H-E-R, smothered seed, okay? S smothered seed, I wrote down letter B, the seed is smothered, the word is weakened. Some of you mothers may not like that word now, so you can use suffocated if you can spell it. The, wor the word is suffocated, the word is smothered, the word is weakened. All right, so what happens here? Um, let's go to the Luke account, Luke chapter 8. Verse 14, that which fell among thorns are they which, when they've heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Okay, when I worked on the farm, sometimes uh, between the fields, back when I was a, a young man, we had hedgerows grown, just like they do in Europe and New Zealand, places like that. Hedgerows were places to prevent wind and soil erosion. So... There was this plant called Multiflora rosa in New Jersey that had come over from Europe, and it's real thorny. And if any of the seeds got chucked among the thorns, what would happen is the thorns would just leach the soil of all the nutrients and moisture. So if any seed was thrown over there, it didn't have a chance of producing anything. All right, so what does this represent here? Well, he says, cares, riches, and pleasures choke the seed. Okay, cares. Have any of you ever done or maybe are presently doing caregiving for a loved one? My mom passed away in January of uh, 22, so a little over a year ago. And the last four years of her, uh, four months of her life, my sister Jen, who's a nurse, and I, one of three siblings, um, we were taking turns with my mom at home. Thankfully, she was, she was dealing with cancer. She was dealing with, uh, we think, early dementia. And we were able to stay with her. And hospice would come in a couple times a week. But Jen and I, basically, somebody stayed with her every night. So we would alternate nights. And mom didn't want to sleep in the hospice bed. So either of the two of us took turns in the bed while mom slept in her lazy, her lazy boy, you know, her, her recliner. I will tell you, it is, it's exhausting to be a caregiver. And I only had to do it for four months. Some of you have done it for years. My hat's off to you. Cares is, there's nothing immoral about cares. It's right to care for people, but Jesus said, be careful for what? Nothing. Careful is overcome by your cares, full of worry, full of anxiety. Cares can choke the word. What's going to happen in our country? Oh, this world that my kids are growing up in. I, we don't even know if the economy is going to hold together. We don't know if our kids are going to have freedom. I mean, I don't even know if my kid's going to decide that he's, he's not the same gender that he was born in. So many cares. Yeah, don't let yourself be overrun by cares. Riches. You may say, well, that's not a problem in my family. Let me tell you something. It is. You're an American. What? If you're an Amer American, you're rich. I had the privilege to travel around the world, and, and not a ton, but that one year I went all over the world. I can tell you this, talking to people, I... 
met a missionary from the Philippines who had flown to North America, and I asked him how much did it cost. He said uh, back then it was $1,200. I said, whoa, that's a lot of money. He said, for my people, that's a year's salary. Imagine his Filipino congregation averaged about, about 100 bucks a month. I was in Africa one time talking to a friend of mine, missionary, very poor people. I said, what do your, your people make? He said, about $300. Monthly? He said, yearly, annually, 300 bucks a year. And that was in the early 2000s. Let me just say to you, people on welfare in this country, people with an EBT card are better off than so many around the world. I mean, even our poorest of people have smartphones and, and bus passes and whatever else. Let me, if you're an American, you're rich, even if you don't think you are. Isn't it amazing? The Lord promised he would meet all of our need, and he defines need as food and covering. And I want to ask you this, how many of you can testify that God has gone beyond his promise to meet your need? Would you lift your hand? He's, he's better than promised. But if we're not careful, the benefits loaded on us can become distractions to what God gives us. Cares, riches, pleasures. Oh, man. You know, we used to talk about the, the pleasures of you know, drunkenness and sexuality. That's still a problem. But how, there's a whole new world of pleasure in the palm of one's hand. Social media. You, you know, the, the, there's a whole attempt to just corrupt our kids' minds through platforms like TikTok. Get them so distracted. It's, it's amazing. Get them so distracted with these things that nothing substantive really matters. Let me tell you, it's not just our kids who are susceptible to it. It's you and me. Cares, riches, and pleasure. Now, the question comes down here. So the first two groups seem pretty evident that they're not saved. The first one, very obviously, he says so. The second one, I would infer not. This one, I'll tell you, I, was, I, I couldn't come to a clear conclusion. I was reading, and I was like, man, I, I don't know. Is this, is, this a, is this a non-believer, or is this a Christian who's backslidden? So I, I want to suggest to you something. Before you pick up a commentary, how about you talk to the author of the Bible? You know him. Before you call up your pastor and say, Pastor, I don't understand this. Before you pull out Warren Wearsby or John Phillips or somebody, how about you talk to God? Lord, what does this mean? And I've been praying about it. Lord, I, I, want to under, I don't want to misrepresent you in any way. And I thought, well, you know, there is some benefit to commentaries. The Lord says in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. And I thought, yeah, there's probably some wisdom in seeking what others have said. I will tell you, commentators are kind of split right down the middle on whether this represents a backslidden Christian or a person who was enlightened but never was saved. So I, I'll tell you what I came to. I cannot tell you conclusively that this is the unsaved person or that this is the backslidden Christian. You know what I can tell you with authority? The point is, any here can be overcome by cares, riches, and pleasures, whether that's the person who never got saved or whether it's a believer like you sitting in meetings like this and there's so many things going on to distract you you totally missed the point. That's what I can tell you with authority. I don't know with certainty whether the person, because it says here, well, he becomes unfruitful. Oh, well, see, he was fruitful, but, but then the other one says he brings no fruit to perfection. Well, if a taproot goes in the ground but never produces fruit, it, the life died before he even got going. That's the picture of the stony ground. So let, let's not get off on whether this is the backslidden Christian or the lost person because we're really not given any more than that. The emphasis of Jesus' point here is that any here, be he saved or be he lost, can be distracted by cares, riches, and pleasures. Don't let that happen to you. But I want to tell you, that's one of Satan's favorite tactics. Let me end with this then. The good ground. The good ground, I call it secured seed. Secured seed. Let's go back to Matthew. And I'll tell you why I use the word secured. When I was a kid, I loved football, American football. I played tackle football, helmets and everything, you know. And I remember our coach when I was in fourth grade telling us, you have to secure the ball, boys. You have to secure the ball. It doesn't matter if it's a kickoff, punt, fumble recovery. You're a receiver. You're a running back. If you have the ball, everybody's trying to get the ball. They're trying to beat it out of your hands. You secure that ball. Don't hold it out there like a loaf of bread. All right, coach would preach that like a preacher in the pulpit. And let me tell you, in football, you got to keep security of the ball. If that's true in football, how much more true is it with the Word of God? You, you need to be like the kid hearing his coach preach 
Secure the ball. When you come to church, don't let your mind wander. This is why I so encourage people to take notes. I don't, I don't ask people to take notes because I think you know, I'm the greatest expositor of Scripture. I want people to take notes so your mind is engaged and you're following along. And you, don't, you know, if you do wander, it's like, oh, I get it back on track because I got to get B when he gives A. You know? Well, that's not bad. That helps you stay focused. Okay, so A, again, you all know, the seed is sown, the word is heard. You got it, okay? But then letter B, the seed is secured, the word is welcomed. This is the one ground where the seed is taken hold and it's secured, the word is welcomed. Okay, so notice what he says there in verse 23, Matthew 13, verse 23. He that receives seed in the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, understandeth it which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Okay, he hears the word, he understands it. Typically, when somebody doesn't understand something, how do we clarify things? I'm doing it right now. What's the process? We ask questions. We interact. That's why I really, I still like to interact with people when I preach because it helps me to see if you're getting it and it also helps you to keep your mind engaged so you understand it. All right, let's go to Luke and we'll finish up in the Luke account. Luke chapter 8, verse 15. Luke eight fifteen. But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. By the way, in an honest and good heart, what does the Bible say about man's heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Anybody know the reference for that? I do. Do you know it? Jeremiah 17.9. That's a good one to learn. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You ever hear somebody offer romantic advice and say, oh, you know, honey, just trust your heart. Dumb, dumb advice. Don't trust your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy all ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Why does he say that? Because your heart's corrupted. Don't trust your heart. Trust God with all your heart. So if the Bible says that he receives seed into an honest and good heart, you know what that tells me? This is picturing a person who's now regenerated. He, he says, wow, you shall know the truth. The truth will make you free. So the Spirit of God is doing the work, and he's accepting it. And now, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. So the word is secured. The seed is secured. The word is welcomed. I said here, the ground is prepared. The word is understood. Fruit is born. Ground prepared. Word understood. Fruit born. And he says here that the fruit is either... You know, 30, 60, or 100-fold. Uh, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, John 15. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. That's John 15, 4 and 5, that, that recitation there. Uh, so abiding in him is what brings forth fruit. Okay, what's fruit? We have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Um, you have the fruit, of, well, let's see, if you have the fruit of an apple tree, you'd be picking what? Apples. And you have fruit of an orange tree, you'd be picking, and, and the fruit of a Christian is? Christians. Yeah. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Not you reaping life everlasting yourself, you being used in God's economy to see others brought into the family of God. So, are you bearing fruit? Some. We don't want to just bear some. We want to bear much fruit. That's how he's glorified. So as we bring this to a conclusion, here's what I'd ask you. Which one of those types of ground are you? Well, I'm saved. Okay, so I'm not the wayside ground, right? Yeah, apparently I'm not the stony ground. But could a saved person possibly be thorny ground or good ground? Sometimes what I do is I'll have people bow their heads, and for I've got a minute or so here left, and I'll have them bow their heads, and I'll ask, how many of you would have to admit that you're the wayside ground? And I will tell you, rarely, but once in a while, some will admit the wayside ground. They, they know they're not saved, they'll admit it. 
Then I'll ask, how many would say, I, I believe that I'm the, sto the stony ground? Maybe made an emotional response, but I'm afraid it wasn't genuine. Or you can see some applications that could be made to the Christian life there, too, even though the direct interpretation seems to be unconverted. And once in a while, I'll have some people raise their hand. Then I'll ask, how many of you are the thorny ground? And there'll be a fair number of people admit, cares, riches, and pleasures. And then I'll ask, good ground. And most people will admit that, yeah, I, I, I think there's fruit in my life. I'd like there to be more. But I will tell you what, more often than not, half the people won't declare one way or another. And then I'll say, okay, would you all look up at me for a minute? Now, I wasn't doing this to bait you. But I want to tell you, some of you didn't declare for anything. But the truth of the matter is, you are one of those types of ground. And you say, yeah, but I don't know which one I am. So guess who knows what kind of ground you are? So how about we ask them? And not only that, how about we ask them to make us the good ground that brings forth fruit to his glory? Greater access to the Bible than the world has ever had, and yet the rarity of godliness today. Let's ask God to make us a godly, fruitful people. Thank you, Father, for this Sunday school hour. May it not be just instructional. May it be transformational. I ask in the name of our dear Savior. Amen. Thanks, Pastor.